Emerging Plowshares. We hope you enjoy this conversation and are challenged by it. Please stay tuned at the end of the podcast for a short message about our ministry. In this series, I want to begin to talk about Ludwig Wittgenstein as a, a project to cover several uh, philosophical thinkers. Uh, in the spirit that I have myself encountered Wittgenstein, I can't claim to, to follow the genealogy exactly, but through James McClendon, and J, uh, McClendon's project, of course, is to picture the biography or life story of Wittgenstein as of philosophical and theological significance. And, of course, he's doing that with a, a series of figures saying, claiming that uh, we can only understand the thought of anyone by understanding their biography. So, too, with Wittgenstein, he claims that Wittgenstein is a Christian in philosophy, which, of course, is a, a very strong claim and not necessarily in accord with an understanding uh, of many who read Wittgenstein. So there would be readings of Wittgenstein that are completely devoid of uh, his religious sensibility. Uh, he himself said, I am not a religious man, but he said, I cannot help seeing every problem from a religious point of view. And so what McClendon does is trace the arc of Wittgenstein's life to show that in fact it makes sense that he was in, indeed trying to at least be a follower of Jesus. My other encounter with uh, someone who was studying Wittgenstein was in Japan, uh, Akio Kikai. D Dr. Kikai is the translator of Wittgenstein's diaries, which uh, McClendon himself did not have uh, access to the diaries, the later diaries, in which Wittgenstein is clearly in the midst of a religious struggle and he comes to, in the diaries, acknowledgement of the resurrection of Christ and acknowledges in many places that his entire goal is uh, simply uh, to be a follower of Jesus, not in any kind of traditional Christian sense, but maybe in the sense of Tolstoy. And, of course, it's Bertrand Russell's account that we have Russell describing the, the change in Wittgenstein. He had always been, he said, had leanings toward a kind of religious mysticism. He describes that during the war, uh, he went on duty in a little town of Tarnoff in Galicia and, and came upon a bookshop which seemed to contain nothing but postcards. And he went inside, and it contained one book, and it was Tolstoy on the Gospels. And he brought it to uh, back to camp with him, and in fact began to buy other copies. He read it, reread it, and would in, in fact carry Tolstoy's Gospels with him the rest of his life. Wittgenstein himself tells Russell he read it uh, under fire and at all times. Now, Russell says that on the whole, he likes Tolstoy less than Dostoevsky and especially the brothers Karamazov. Wittgenstein will read Dostoevsky. He reads Kierkegaard. Uh, and clearly, he has a deep religious sensibility and he penetrated, as Russell says, into deep mystical ways of thought and feeling. Now, Russell says that what he was attempting to do 
and he acknowledges that Wittgenstein would not agree with this, was that he saw mysticism or religion as a way, in fact, to make him stop thinking. He was even toying, Russell says, with the idea of becoming a monk. This is very much connected with his philosophical understanding uh, and the development of his philosophical understanding. This is the thing that uh, Kikai brought out to me, in fact, in our conversations, that if you read the philosophical investigations from the viewpoint of a theology and put it together with the diaries, then what is happening in the philosophy is what is happening in the diaries, that it's all a kind of introspection and attempt to journey spiritually. Or as, as it's been described, that Wittgenstein himself would describe his, his work as a kind of therapeutic. Philosophy is an illness of language, and true philosophy will consist, in, in fact, of curing ourselves of the philosophical uh, kind of intent. And if we put that in four ways, you know, what specifically? The philosophical method is aimed very often at transcending the body by, you know, constructing some sort of metaphysical or grand theory. Philosophy is aimed at, in some way, overcoming a, an embodied nature and an anthropology that in some way would divide soul and body. And even in the philosophy of language, there's the sense that the language is pictured free of its bodily nature. And Wittgenstein, of course, wants to bring us back to this embodied sensibility that is a necessary part of language. And that meaning then cannot be separated, you know, the mind cannot be separated from the world. But maybe even in a, in a more intimate sense that Wittgenstein is devoting himself to a mission to bring a, a, a peace to what we might call the metaphysical worry. Now, if you put this together with his understanding that he was, his, he saw his primary problem in a, in a twofold sense. As being self-deceived, he would undertake a long process of confession to friends, but also as being deceived then and portraying himself as arrogant, uh, he would call himself a kind of coward and that he would, you know, present himself in a false way and, and he attributes a lot of this to a kind of pride that he's trying to overcome. There is the sense that his philosophy is an uh, attempt to overcome a kind of philosophical pride, the notion that we can use philosophy as a kind of stair step to heaven his point is that we need to cure that understanding. We need a medical treatment. And in this sense, we might say that his philosophy, uh, structurally at least, does not have a, a, any kind of systemic uh, mode other than that. Uh, we might sum him up as, uh, in the words of Nietzsche, every great philosophy so far has been the personal confession of its author and a kind of involuntary and unconscious memoir. 
This is certainly the case with Wittgenstein. I think that McClendon recognized this, and many people have begun to recognize that you cannot really rec uh, deal with Wittgenstein apart from his long periods of isolation in Norway, in Ireland, that he would talk about his time in Norway as a period of prayer, which was, of course, he also saw as the, his most productive uh, period. And so if you ex are exclusively occupied with the written text and you neglect his way of living, living monk-like, living a separated kind of existence for much of his life, giving away uh, his material possessions or at least uh, relinquishing them to his uh, siblings, that this then feeds into the philosophy and the philosophy undergirds then what, he, what he's doing, that his way of living gives us a kind of code for interpreting his thinking. The other question then is, well, what was his style of living? You know, was it as a kind of monk in exile? Was it a kind of alien? Was it uh, uh, as a kind of outsider? Certainly there was a, a profound religious sensibility that his understanding was that the period in which he was living was one that was completely incapable of understanding what he was about. Maybe Norman Malcolm was one of the few persons who had a lifelong relationship with him. Uh, he said that he is trying to get his reader to think of how the words are tied up with human life, with patterns of response in thought and action. And of course, this is the key phrases that forms of life or language games is a picture of his conceptual understanding. That is that words are not isolated entities apart from this uh, practices uh, in life, in what he calls language games. Malcolm says his conceptual studies are a kind of anthropology. His descriptions of the human forms of life on which our concepts are based make us aware of the kind of creatures we are. His philosophy is about a connectedness to the body, but to say to the body is also means to the environment, the situ you know, the situated human environment. And so he's very conscious uh, in this sense of where he is, whether he's in Norway or Ireland, and he's easily distracted. Uh, he says that I have to be in isolation. He, he hated, in many ways, Cambridge. He hated the academic life because of kind of a false pretense that he saw there, not only in others, but I think he was himself tempted by this kind of a kind of pride in which you know people would describe him as a genius or whatever and he felt himself being pulled into that there is something like a deep or basic pattern that is there in his philosophy and in his life situation the way that wittgenstein puts it the way to solve the problem you see in life is to live in a way that will will make what is problematic disappear. That is, he sees most philosophical problems as false problems. And in a sense, he sees one's relationship to himself as a kind of deception. 
Wittgenstein says, language sets everyone the same traps. It is an immense network of easily accessible wrong turnings. And he sees his own work as one of putting up signposts warning people not to make the wrong turn at key junctions so that he is one who would point out the dangers. Wittgenstein once asked one of his students, what is the use of studying philosophy is if all that it does for you is to enable you to talk with some plausibility about some abstruse questions of logic and if it does not improve your thinking about the important questions of everyday life. The profound reflections of, that are there in the philosophy are about the human subject, the human self-understanding, the human condition, philosophically speaking. But if we, this can remain veiled if we do not put it in the life situation of Wittgenstein. Wittgenstein says, most propositions and questions which have been written about philosophical matters are not false but senseless. We cannot therefore answer questions of this kind but we can just point out their senselessness. Most questions and propositions of the philosophers result from the fact, he says, that we do not understand the logic of our language. And so it is not to be wondered at that the deepest problems are really not problems. They're just a, a misunderstanding. He says, I might say if the place I want to get to could only be reached by a ladder, I would give up trying to get there, for the place I really have to get to is a place I must already be at now. Anything that I might reach by climbing a ladder does not interest me. That is, that the philosophical project is often seen as a metaphysical project, an attempt to use language to climb to some absolute that in some way floats free of situatedness of the relative understanding of human embodiedness and infinitude to in some way reach infinity through a finite process. He says, this is my starting point as far as I can see is then as a therapeutic, as, uh, as uh, some have said a kind of monasticism in which the journey is an inward journey. But what I would say is that Wittgenstein's notion is not that the truth resides in him as in a Anselmian understanding or in a kind of adolescent notion that the ego or the soul in some way has an essence that contains the truth. That's not Wittgenstein's mysticism, though we might refer to him as a kind of monastic or mystic, that his in inclinations are anti-philosophical. A lot of this, if you uh, people tie it into his stay in Norway, in the village that uh, Skjolden, I guess is the way that you say it, uh, that he builds himself a little hut there overlooking a lake and he will spend long periods there in total isolation. His understanding of his theory about language, about religion, is then tied into 
the practices that he puts in place in doing his philosophy. It is more our use of words and language, he thinks, that distorts our perspective and understanding. And so his thinking, his way of life go together to be a kind of continuous attempt to come to grip with the challenge to being a decent human being, even being a perfect human being, as he will say to his uh, Russian teacher when he comes to her and wants to confess uh, that she says, what is it? Do you want to be perfect? And he says, of course I do. So to be able to think, to experience, to behave, and he's, and of course the image here is clearly the image of Christ, that the whole point of one's thinking is to in some way achieve an ethical uprightness. I think this then is his philosophical journey to be a follower of Jesus. In 1948, he's in a, another house in Ireland where he also isolates himself. He writes to a friend, I think it must be because of the atmosphere, because not only the grass, but also everything brown, the sky and the sea are lovely. Much better than in Cambridge. He always felt that he could not really think when he was in Cambridge. So philosophy, Wittgenstein says, is opposed to the darkness of the time, to the cultural decline that he connected with Cambridge. The investigations, really, it is a kind of opposition uh, to a philosophical understanding, but the whole notion of progress. So Wittgenstein says, where does our investigation get its importance from? It seems only to destroy everything interesting, that is, all that is great and important. As it were, all the buildings, leaving behind only bits of stone and rubble. What we are destroying is nothing but houses of cards, and we are clearing up the ground of language on which they stood. That is, it's this false understanding of what language, that in some way language can float free of the world, and this is the notion of a kind of, maybe even he would say not only philosophical progress, but a, 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 a civ the progress of civilization is a kind of false understanding. And in his Norwegian exile, he begins writing his the philosophical investigations. There is a the the solitude, the calmness, the landscape. Many think was in itself a fundamental and necessary part for reimagining this world cleared of the rubble of thought that clutters so much thinking. In a letter to Russell in uh, as early as 1913, he says, being alone here does me no end of good, and I do not think I could bear now bear life among people. Inside me everything is in a state of ferment. In another letter much later, 1936, he says that work on philosophy, like work on arch in architecture, is really more work on oneself, on one's own conception, on how one sees things and what one expects of them. Uh, one of Wittgenstein's disciples says, my own impression is that some moment in his life, perhaps a moment of great difficulty and even despair. Wittgenstein made a resolution to live the rest of his life in a certain way and with a certain aim, 
and not to let himself be deflected by anything from his resolution. The aim might be described as that of doing his utmost to help others to think correctly about the important problems of life. And so to do this, he required that he should devote every bit of his time and energies with complete seriousness to the task and not allow himself to be distracted by lesser considerations that surrounded him, for example, in academia. In isolation in Norway, in Skjolden, which he would come back to for regular long periods from 1913 to 1951. Actually, by 51, he is not able to come back when he would like to, but he continues to work in isolation. He moved, he even moved out of the village in Skjolden and secluded himself in a completely secluded cabin. Let me end this, uh, this podcast on Wittgenstein. I'll take up more later. Norman Malcolm writes, Ludwig Wittgenstein was undoubtedly a most uncommon man. Though he was free from that form of vanity which shows itself in a desire to seem different, it was inevitable that he should stand out sharply from his surroundings. It is probably true that he lived on the border of mental illness. A fear of being driven across it followed him throughout his life. And, of course, three of his brothers would commit suicide. But it would be wrong to say of his work that it had a morbid character. It is deeply original, but not at all eccentric. It has the same naturalness, frankness, and freedom from all artificiality that was characteristic of this is a uh, This is just an introduction, then, to a bit of trying to interweave the life of Wittgenstein with his thought, but I will take up more in the next podcast. Forging Plowshares is a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom by providing in-depth, transformative biblical and theological education and discipleship. If you have been moved by this podcast, please remember to share on social media. If you would like to know more about Forging Plowshares, would like to contact us with questions, want to ask about how you can get involved, or for more information about how you can support this ministry, please go to our website at forgingplowshares.org.